Hello everyone, this is Karin Takar and welcome to the Zenergy Podcast. Over the past decade, India has done an impressive job of integrating renewable energy into its energy mix. For this Fulbright podcast series, I sought to investigate the enabling factors and potential of India's global leadership in renewable energy with the focus on solar. This Fulbright series is broken down into four seasons. In this season, through conversations with leaders who have been instrumental in developing the Indian renewable energy sector, we will highlight how India has managed to integrate 35 gigawatts of solar in just a span of 10 years. We will also explore what these leaders believe the key challenges to be as this sector further develops. In this episode, I will be speaking with Craig O'Connor, the founder of the Renewable Energy Business Development Program at the U.S. Export-Import Bank that since 2008 has generated over $2 billion in financing for renewable energy projects. We dive into the stories behind Exum's involvement in financing some of India's earliest solar projects and also discuss key financing terms that Exum Bank looks for when financing these projects. I hope you enjoy. Thank you, Mr. O'Connor, for participating in this interview. I really appreciate you taking the time. And it would be really great if you could just talk a little bit about the extent of your involvement in the energy sector today and how you initially got involved in this space. Do you provide a little bit of background? Sure. Uh, my, my pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, Exxon Bank, as you might know, was established in 1934, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, during the New Deal to provide financing where it didn't otherwise exist or didn't otherwise exist on commercially viable terms. And you can imagine the challenges that uh, global markets faced in, in the, during the Great Depression in the 1930s. So here, Exxon Bank is, 87 years later, still providing financing uh, largely in emerging markets where uh, financial markets uh, aren't yet developed or aren't yet developed to the extent that commercially viable financing is, is available. And so um, Exxon Bank has a congressional charter. So every five to seven years, that charter is renewed. And our focus on, on in renewable energy really um, begins formally with the 1992 charter in which there was language that uh, directed Exxon Bank to increase its support for envir environmentally beneficial exports, including renewable energy, um, also name an officer of the bank to advise the board on, on strategies uh, to grow the bank's portfolio. And uh, on a personal level, I started at the bank in January of 1993 as a loan officer covering the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, after one of the board cases, I was uh, encouraged to apply for the newly created position of environmental liaison officer. And so I applied, and uh, this was late 1994. And really uh, began in earnest in early 1995, wrote a strategic plan for the bank uh, about how it could increase its support for environmentally beneficial exports and of course, including renewable energy. So I've served as the bank's renewable energy officer since, since that period, uh, among other duties as assigned, you know, one of the, one of the uh, advantages of a smaller agency is you get to wear a lot of different hats. So, so right now I'm 
wearing a loan officer hat, but I'm also, again, um, probably the chief person engaged with uh, business development to grow the, grow the bank's portfolio. So Exxon Bank, but before that, Exxon Bank had been involved in energy for years. Uh, for example, uh, we financed some of the first independent power projects in many countries around the world as countries shifted from government ownership and operation of, of power projects, electricity projects, to more uh, allowing the private sector to come in and build, own, and operate, maybe transfer, maybe never transfer uh, electricity generation plants. And so it was kind of this change in philosophies of governments to say, well, look, if we get the electrons, does it matter if the, if the government owns it or if a private sector company owns it? And maybe it's better if it's the latter, because then the government can uh, preserve its scarce resources to invest in healthcare or other things that can't easily be done by the private sector. So it was that it was kind of that change in philosophy, uh, but also the emergence of, in the case of renewables, renewable technology. But but just to go back to my original point, um, so Exxon Bank had financed the Itaipu Dam in Brazil uh, in um, around 1980. We had financed a Yasrita a hydroelectric project in Argentina. And today, I think that still provides 25% of Argentina's power. Uh, so, so Exxon Bank has long been involved in first of its kind uh, energy projects. More recent times, um, what we saw particularly um, since uh, probably the, you know, the mid 2000s was the emergence of solar and wind. And before that, I had mentioned Exxon Bank had long been supporting hydro. In the early 1990s, we supported a number of geothermal power projects in the Philippines and, and uh, other, other countries as well. But really what we think about now um, with respect to the growth of, of solar wind, um, it really began in earnest probably around 2006 when the technology improved, number one, but also you had uh, demand pull policies uh, put in place by the European Union. They had feed-in tariffs. You know, if you build a solar project or wind project and you connect to the grid, we promise to pay you, you know, I think it was up to 50 euro cents a kilowatt at one point that, that Germany provided, that Spain had provided, others. And so this really, this kind of this, you know, this combination of improvement in the technology and, and demand pull uh, policies really helped to expand the growth of solar. So in terms of, and then I'll pause for another one of your questions, but in terms of Exxon Bank, you know, our, our current um, area and where we became involved in India was that, um, you know, as, as part of the bank's <clears throat> effort to grow its um, financing for renewables, you, you need to do a couple different things. I mean, first of all, you need to know who in the United States is manufacturing uh, renewable energy technologies. Who, who's manufacturing solar panels? Who's manufacturing wind turbines, geothermal panels, uh, or geothermal power projects, uh, hydro, et cetera? And so it's kind of a two-pronged approach. You get to know the U.S. exporters. You let them know what you what you have available in terms of financing. But you also, to use this phrase again, you also want to create demand pull uh, by going to key international markets. You do some research. You figure out where are the leading markets. Uh, for renewable energy, where Exxon Bank can also make a difference, right? So Exxon Bank financing may not be needed in Germany or Spain, where they've got you know long-term viable capital markets, banking markets. But our financing is needed in emerging markets such as Latin America, such as uh, India, uh, other other markets in Asia and Africa. 
And so you, you, you do that research, you kind of create a, if you, if you can imagine this, a Venn diagram, and you figure out, okay, well, who are the leading project sponsors? Who are the leading buyers in these emerging markets? And if you can alert them to the fact that, look, Exxon Bank is a U.S. government agency, um, we probably have the most cost-effective source of financing, uh, certainly in U.S. dollars, but also we're able to provide loan guarantees. And so Exxon Bank is part of the OECD Export Credit Agency Agreement. Uh, not only do we have a focus on growing our, our portfolio per our, the, the directive mandate from Congress, but also within this OECD group, we're able to offer the maximum allowable repayment terms for renewables, which is now 18 years, right? And so with renewables, essentially you're buying heavily capital intensive, you're buying your fuel up front, if you will. And so the longer terms that you can offer at the better rates uh, translates into a lower cost of electricity. And so that that's part of what we did uh, starting in 2008 with India. So maybe I'll just, I'll pause here and I'm sure you have a few questions. Thank you so much for just providing all of that great clarity and you made my job very easy because you just answered three of my questions in one. And um, well, that's great. You know, we we want people to use Exit Bank. We we want to grow our portfolio. Mm -hmm. I always kind of you know kid people when I'm in international markets, and I said, listen, I don't work on commission. Maybe maybe for good or for bad, but I mean, what you're seeing <laughs> here is an honest broker. You know, Exit Bank financing. We're not telling you who to buy from the United States, but if you find U.S technology cost competitive and compelling, then this is a type of financing we can offer. So again, 18 year repayment terms, we, in addition to financing the US made goods and services, we can also finance local costs up to 30% and possibly moving up to 50% of the value of the US export contract. So to give you a, an example, if you've got 100 million in US exports, Exxon Bank can finance 85 million, there's an OECD export credit agency group requirement that the buyer makes a 15% cash pay payment to the supplier. So we finance that 85% plus, we're able to add on to that 85 million, another 30 million in local costs. And just to make one point, I mentioned US made goods and services. It doesn't have to be US owned. So for example, one of our leading wind turbine manufacturers and exporters is Siemens Gamesa Renewable Energy. So it used to be two firms, Gamesa of Spain and Siemens of Germany. Siemens uh, took over Gamesa. It's a German-held company, but they manufacture wind turbines in Hutchinson, Kansas, Kansas, and blades in Fort Mays, Iowa, get the towers from a variety of uh, suppliers in the United States. And so we we finance Siemens wind turbines, uh, obviously, as well as for solar's thin film modules. Very interesting. And yet, I'm just kind of curious in terms of like how the process works, and it might be a great kind of transition to my next question, which was with specific regards to the Indian market. So I know XM Bank, just through all my Fulbright research, through my conversations with a lot of industry players over there, was very involved in helping facilitate the solar sector's growth, especially early in the process. And I'm just curious, could you like provide the story behind how the first Indian solar project kind of got introduced to Exxon Bank's portfolio? Like, did someone approach Exxon Bank and say, um, we would like help with financing or? Right. Well, really, this is a great story. And this is probably of all the things in my career, I've had a varied and interesting career with Exxon Bank for sure. Probably the thing I'm most proud is Exxon Bank's role of being the first 
financier, international financier to finance a national solar mission project in India. So to go back, the national solar mission uh, was announced by the government of India, uh, Manwan Singh, I think was then the prime minister, and created a target that India wanted to get 100,000 megawatts, 100 gigawatts uh, of solar energy. I mean, it's clear if you visit Rajasthan, you visit other uh, areas in India, the, the solar resources there, as again, I mentioned earlier, the solar uh, efficiencies started to improve, the costs of solar modules started to decline, and all of a sudden you're, you're getting very cost-effective energy, indigenous energy, um, energy that doesn't require major infrastructure investments that can deliver uh, power to India's people. And it's, they, they've clearly um, you know, achieved quite a bit and it's, it's impressive what they've done. So our, our involvement really starts in, um, in 2008. So in 2008, Exxon Bank created its, uh, its Office of Renewable Energy. We created our, our Renewable Energy Exports Initiative. And so I, I started that up. And um, part of uh, you know, earlier, the strategic plan and how do you grow this business? Well, you know, Exxon Bank is only relevant if US companies win the order, right? And so that could either be the US companies uh, introducing their customers to Exxon Bank or Exxon Bank introducing the customers to Exxon Bank financing and then the customers saying, hey, well, this is great financing. Let me look at the U.S. and see if I can buy U.S. made goods and services to take advantage of this long-term cost-effective financing. And so part of what I've tried to do through my, uh, my career is uh, get myself invited to uh, various conferences to speak because this highlights what Exxon Bank can do Again, it grows the awareness, and you know, with the growth of awareness, can uh, drive the uh, growth in demand. And, and so, my earlier uh, point to you to get to know the the U.S. Commercial Service in India, and they're 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 in every major U.S. embassy you can imagine, and the Foreign Service nationals are the uh, citizens of the country that work for the U.S. government to try to find uh, projects, export sales for US companies, and it's a fantastic resource. And so I was invited to speak at, uh, I think it was the first or second Renewable Energy India Expo. And I gladly accepted, And but before I went, I had sent an email to the, to the Commerce Department and State Department folks in, in India and said, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be speaking at this conference, but I'd love to meet you know, potential project developers that may be interested in Exxon Bank financing for uh, financing solar projects and financing other projects. And so I'd met a number of people at the conference, but I was also uh, set up with a number of meetings. And uh, you've been to India, so you know how the traffic is. And uh, luckily, I, I <laughs> held my meetings mostly in the Maria Sheraton, so people would come to me and I could I could do six, seven, eight, nine meetings a day instead of the two or three that you could do if you were out on the road yourself doing it. So I was introduced to folks like Indapreet Wadwa, who started Azure Power. And I was introduced to folks like Artisher, the contractor who started Kiran Energy in a joint venture with the Mahindras and the folks from Reliance Energy. So um, Azure Power was, was just beginning. They were very interested in the financing. And Azure Power, I think, actually was the, the entity that uh, came to us and said, look, we're, we're interested in buying from First Solar. We're pursuing a national solar mission project. Uh, is this something you can do? And so we looked at it, and it, you know, there's there's a little sausage making in this, right? And so, 
you know, there's a power purchase agreement that the Indian government had, had put out. Um, you know, there, there were some, some terms that we needed clarification on. Anyway, I worked very closely with our, our project finance group. I'm actually, nowadays, I'm housed within the project finance group. In those days, we had kind of a standalone office. And so the folks within the project finance group, very proactive, and the, the, our folks in Exxon Bank's legal area, they sent a team because the thing was, I said, look, it's not just a one-off. It's not just Azure Power. There's a lot of companies that are going to be coming into us with applications. And we need to determine our approach. And so to the credit, there was a team that went to went to India, uh, interviewed um, the, uh, the government, the project sponsors. And just to step back for a second, the power purchase agreement was with NVVN, which was a trading arm of the National Thermal Power Company, a government-owned enterprise very credit worthy on their own. Um, and so we, we wanted to see, uh, ask certain questions about the power purchase agreement. And basically with, with project finance, non-recourse project finance, you lend to the project and it's the cash flows from the project that repay your loan. And so in this case, it was the ca- cash flows generated by the sale of electricity to NVVN that would pay back Bank's loan. So in that instance, you're looking at the technology to make sure it's proven and reliable. You, you want to make sure that the uh, the project doesn't have too much debt. And, and so there's, you know, the debt service coverage ratio is, isn't too, uh, isn't too thin. And so in other words, the project will have enough uh, revenue to, to pay back its borrowings. And so in, in that case, we, we found that to be, to be viable. And so we were able to finance the first project with, with Azure power and then uh, a series of projects. And actually not only did we finance the first one, we financed the first nine and, you know, ended up with a portfolio of uh, about $350 million that supported uh, close to 300 megawatts. So quite proud of how we did that. It, it wasn't just national solar mission. So we're actually, uh, I think we were the second one to finance the state of Gujarat solar project. So our, uh, our sister agency, OPIC then now DFC beat us at that one, but I, I was determined not to let them beat us for the national solar mission. So that that's that's the backstory, right? And so, wow. yeah. And and here's the thing too. It's um. So our loan was in in U.S. dollars. Uh, the revenues were in Indian rupees. So we you know we had some currency mismatch. The project sponsors were able to hedge that. But then the fundamental question was why was Exxon Bank needed at the time? Well, the Indian banks really weren't lending for solar. Not many banks were lending for solar. You know, in fairness. But also the terms were pretty short, right? So maybe the terms were five-year terms or maybe eight-year terms was was the maximum terms. In order to uh, win a project through the bid that the government had had offered, you needed to have low-cost solar power. And the fact that you had low-cost financing helped to create a a, low-cost bid for that power. And let me me also step back and explain the Indian government's process. So I I thought, the way the Indian government did this was really good. So they would have a, a yearly or, or every two years, they would have an auction and they would buy, okay, this, this time, this auction, we're going to buy 500 megawatts of power. Next time we're going to buy, you know, 2000 megawatts of power. So they were essentially riding down the cost curve of solar, right? Of solar modules. And so the way that they would con- conduct these bids is, you know, may the lowest price win. In other words, the company that will sell us power at the lowest cost will win the project. And again, thanks to us working with uh, the Indian project developers, answering all their questions, I had a lot of crazy 
late night calls, early morning calls, weekend calls to explain to them Exim Bank's process, how it worked, um, is it, it basically how we're able to do this. And we had developed really an understanding, again, as I've mentioned, of the, the power purchase agreement and how the project should look like. So we actually, and I can send this to you at some point if you're interested, we actually developed a sample term sheet for different institutions because I was getting, you can imagine once we did a press release and highlighted our financing of these projects, we were inundated with requests. And so worked with our project finance folks and, and developed a term sheet. So this is a sample term sheet of what Exim Bank financing might look like. These are the types, this is the type of information we're gonna need in order to move forward with your application. And that that was that was worth its weight in gold and, and actually enabled us to, what I would kind of describe as building a franchise uh, mm-hmm. to do not not one off, not the first one, but the first nine, and then position ourselves to do uh, even more projects later. Super interesting. Yeah, I actually interviewed in, uh, Inderpreet Wadwa, and his story in itself is also fascinating, just launching Azure and like creating the first utility-scale solar project in India. And incredible to see that XM Bank was also like a part of enabling that process that company's done really well and can only imagine without XM support, who knows whether it would have taken off like how it has, but um, yeah. Well, that, yeah, thank you for providing like all of that, that story. No, of course, you know, and Interpret's an interesting, interesting guy. Of course he had, uh, as you probably know from interviewing him, <laughs> he'd gotten his MBA from the Haas Business School at, at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Uh, worked for Oracle for seven years, and then <clears throat> noticed all the solar projects in California and said, hey, we got even better resources in India, and there's a, a real need for power and electricity in India. And so, as, mm-hmm. as you know from his, you know, his, your talks with him, started his business. But, you know, his, his first thought was to to buy U.S.-made goods and services when he when he started his his company. Now the same thing, Artisher Contractor. I don't if you've not interviewed Artisher, you, you definitely should. He's now he sold his company. He's now an entrepreneur and kind of professor leading the innovation uh, department at Ohio State University, where he got his electrical engineering degree as an undergrad and also his MBA. So Artisher is back at Ohio State. But you know, here again, these are folks that folks that studied in the United States got familiar with working with with Americans, got familiar with working with U.S. technologies, went and started businesses in their home country that what? That generated U.S. exports and supported U.S. jobs. So mm-hmm. there's a you can see there's a larger story here, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of outside our bailiwick, but important. Agreed. Yeah. That's, uh, and Azure is a U.S. It's headquartered in Delaware. And like listed on the American Stock Exchange, so yes, again, um, but yeah, it's small worlds. And I would love to one get the term sheet. That would be really interesting to look into. And are you guys still using that same term sheet, or has it evolved significantly? It, you know, I would say you know, project finance. The fundamentals are still pretty much the same. So um, depending on what the new kind of offering from India looks like we, we might, we, we could certainly alter it, amend it, tailor it to the current situation. What are some of the, like the core aspects that you try and protect against? Like, I guess another way to frame this is 
maybe like how have the risks evolved from your perspective, um, like from those early projects to maybe the later ones that you financed? Yeah, excellent, Big. One of the um, one of the constants, and I don't think I'd mention this to you know overtly, but in addition to financing the export of U.S. made goods and services, our other pillar is that we look for a reasonable assurance of repayment. And um, that can take the form of, you know, lending to a company, uh, lending to a special purpose project, like in project finance, lending to a government, which we don't, you know, we don't lend that much to governments these days. And, and so we do a due diligence. And so, I mean, really, we're going to look at, um, you know, what what's the price of power that they're selling, um, looking at the experience of the project sponsors, uh, can they f- successfully execute the project, looking at the technology. I mean, the technology is kind of already proven and reliable. So we, we continue to evolve. I mean, one, one um, kind of obvious challenge is that you're, if you're earning revenues in the, in the local currency, rupees or Brazilian reais or other currencies, uh, ideally you could borrow in the same currency so you don't have the foreign exchange risk. Because the challenge is if, if you've got to pay back a loan in dollars and the local currency drops in value against the dollar, then your debt burden is increased significantly. And so we also are able to provide loan guarantees, uh, clearly in U.S. dollars, but also in, in currencies such as rupees and Brazilian reais and, and other currencies. And so that that's something that um, I, I think we'll try to explore and hopefully create greater utilization for in the future because it does uh, it does provide a natural hedge if you're able to uh, achieve that, able to match the revenues and, and the expenses. Who exactly can qualify for an XM loan? Do you need to use all American-made products? Say you're building a solar project. Could you provide a little more clarity around who qualifies for XM? Sure. Um, well, again, it would be the, the qualifier would be the borrower, and the borrower, in order to qualify, would need to be creditworthy, or the project would need to be creditworthy. But I think you raise a good point because Exxon Bank, uh, we finance the export of U.S. made goods and services, so there may be um, other parts of the project that maybe maybe we're we're not able to finance. And so, in our last charter from Congress in, in December of 2019, we were given special language uh, authority to help U.S. companies compete with China. And as you know, from your research, China probably has, what, 87% of the world's market uh, mm-hmm. for solar modules, right? And they, now the difference is they make the, the polysilicon, the crystal, crystal silicon modules, whereas First Solar has cadmium telluride, it's a deposition thin film module, so it's different technology. Um, I mean, clearly, you know, China's been found guilty of predatory practices, dumping uh, support okay. from both their central government and state government to their manufacturers. Uh, recently, a really horrible story came out about uh, slave labor in, in uh, Xinjiang among the Uyghurs uh, in production of polysilicon. So it's an issue now. Um, so with that um, China competition in mind, Exxon Bank... Uh, is now able to uh, support greater uh, inclusion of what we call eligible foreign content. So in other words, imagine a company like like Next Tracker. You know, they're making tracking equipment to help uh, increase the productivity of the electrons produced by the solar modules. And maybe they have, you know, maybe they have 70% U.S. content. So of their trackers, 
and I, I'm just using it as an example, so I don't know what exactly what it is, but we'll just say 70%. And so if they have 70% U.S. content and they're, they're selling along with First Solar, and First Solar's got, you know, uh, well over 85% U.S. content, the, the combination, the total U.S. export contract, as long as it's uh, 51% or above, then Exim Bank can finance the uh, 85% of the exports coming from the United States. And so that gives us more financing ability for the exports, but it also serves to increase the amount of local costs that we can support. So remember the local cost is 30% of the value of the U.S. export contract, right? And so if we're able to grow the U.S. export contract, then we're able to grow the local costs. And so now what we're seeing is combined with the with the equity investment that a project sponsor might make, and that, that typically ranges around 25%, maybe 25 to 30%. Uh, Exim Bank can usually be the sole source of, of debt uh, to a project, which project sponsors tend to like because they're dealing with one bank, uh, one set of legal documents, um, et cetera. I see. You know, the more, you know, the more that we could build back better, you know, to, to steal mm-hmm. the President Biden's phrase, you know, the more that we could build mm-hmm. back better in the United States and export our technologies to the world to help the climate situation, it's a win-win for everybody. And also, as you know, solar is the most, is probably the lowest cost energy nowadays, uh, closely mm-hmm. followed by wind. And so, you know, if we're able to push that cost even lower, then you, you can see the ramp up, right? And we haven't, you and I haven't even talked about storage here today, but that's, you know, that's coming along very rapidly. I mean, obviously we have, you know, Tesla making the power wall and a power pack and, uh, but there's other companies, Energy Storage Systems Inc. makes an iron flow battery. Uh, mm-hmm. They've got a, you know, 10 year warranty from Munich Reinsurance. They've got a number of orders under their belt. There's another company, uh, EOS, that's mm-hmm. EOS Energy. They're out of Pittsburgh. Maybe you've heard of them. That's a really interesting story. In fact, uh, maybe for one of your interviews, you might interview some people there and I can give you some contacts, but they perfected the chemistry of their zinc flow battery. And, but they were, they were having some problems when they were manufacturing it. Well, where were they manufacturing it? In China. So what they decided mm-hmm. is, you know, we just can't get the quality that we need. And so they brought back their whole supply chain from China to the United States. So this, this is... Yeah, this is a great story. And those, those guys are really starting to ramp up. So there's, you know, there's, there's room for all types of technologies. Um, mm-hmm. the, the demands are huge when you think about, you know, the transition to, to you know, clean energy, the, the resiliency that's needed, um, I, not just in emerging markets, but the United States, you need, um, you need backup power. Um, I was at a microgrid conference, mini grid conference just before COVID, and unbeknownst to me, uh, most major cities have an energy manager, right? So the city of Washington, D.C. has an energy manager. And they, there's a panel of three of them. That person was one. Yeah, I think there was one from uh, Princeton, New Jersey. There's one from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Anyway, they were talking about islanding. And islanding was the term of, well, look, if the, if the grid goes down, we want to make sure the hospital still has power. And we want to make sure the water treatment plant still has power. And we want to make sure other critical infrastructure still has power. And so when you can put up, you know, s- solar and storage mini grid, right? Not only are you, you know, reducing your costs from, from the grid itself, but you're also giving yourself uh, 
resiliency and standby power. And so that's obviously important in the United States, but think about unelectrified communities in India and Africa, right? It doesn't make sense to mm-hmm. run power lines down highways like we did, but mm-hmm. you can do this with distributed energy. The other thing I wanted to mention before we close out here is uh, so, so corporations get this too. Uh, corporations are, are buying renewable, they're, they're buying storage in order to reduce their costs, but also for resiliency. There's uh, something called the RE100. And so these are the group of uh, global companies, mostly large companies that have committed to getting 100% of their energy from renewable sources. And that number just continues to grow. Uh, and so you can, you can imagine the, um, you know, the Amazons of the world and the Googles of the world. And I think Google today is maybe the largest buyer of uh, renewables in the United States, but maybe, maybe Amazon just eclipses them. I, you know, they keep, they keep going back and forth, mm-hmm. but that's also a big driver. And so, uh, you know, uh, I, I hate to use this pun, but I'm going to do it anyway. The future is bright for solar. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And do check out the show notes for more information on my guest. See you next time. 